Hey everyone, you're listening to the MLEPC podcast. Thank you for joining us. The podcast features every previous Sunday's sermon and plenty of other cool content like interviews and mini-series. Please remember to share our content and subscribe to our channel so you can stay up to date with everything that we create. You can find out more about what's happening at the church by visiting our website at mlepc.org or checking us out on our social media. Once again, we thank you for tuning in to the Emily PC podcast, and we hope to see you at an event soon. Good morning. This morning, we're grateful um, for our choir and our, for our musicians, uh, for Cindy, who leads them, for Pat, who accompanies them. We're grateful this morning uh, for the international members of our church who have come and blessed us with their language, their custom, their tradition. Um, I would say welcome to our family, but it's more that we're grateful that we could be welcomed into yours. Today we pray for uh, many people in this nation who are suffering, who've endured uh, the tragedy of Hurricane Ian, people who have had their homes destroyed and their lives shaken up. Uh, Please keep those people in your prayers even as we come before God this morning um, asking him to bless us. We ask that he would bless them as well. And thank you all for reading the scripture this morning. Thank you, Paula. This is the word of the Lord from the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 5, 11 through 6, 3, from the New American Standard Bible. This is a tricky passage. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. It was hard to create a sermon out of this passage, so forgive me in advance. Concerning him, we have much to say. That's in reference to the priest Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it is difficult to explain since you have become poor listeners. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everyone likes a good steak. Unless you're a vegetarian, in which case you may like a good steak, but you are disciplined enough not to eat one. I like my steaks cooked medium rare. 
Not so it's still moving, but certainly not blackened. A good steak takes approximately three to five minutes on each side to grill or to broil. Good steaks are best prepared, lightly seasoned with salt and pepper. This is the minimalist approach, which I think maintains the natural aged flavor of the steak. The best place to eat a steak in the city of Pittsburgh was the Pittsburgh Steak Company in the south side, but people over time did not know how to appreciate a good steak, so it lost its popularity and it permanently closed. Where are we going with this? Why all this talk about steak at nine in the morning? Well, it's because my calling by God this morning is to encourage you all to become carnivores. That's what Hebrews is telling us. There comes a time when believers in Christ Jesus are called to lessen their dependence on spiritual milk and start eating spiritual meat. The passage today from the epistle to the Hebrews picks up from last week and includes a section on the character Melchizedek. Melchizedek is not like everybody's favorite guy to preach on. And there's a reason for that. Melchizedek appears very early in the Bible in Genesis 14. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, according to the texts. In my humble opinion, Melchizedek is actually a vision of God. This is a classic theophany, a God sighting in the Old Testament. It occurs a few miles away from where Abram, Abram was staying at the time, near the Oaks of Mamre. Later in Genesis 18, three men, three men pay a visit to Abram. The text in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, called the Septuagint, states very clearly that the three men who visit Abram there are the Lord, a.k.a. the Trinity in the Hebrew Bible. Abram bows down in worship to them, and though there are three of them, he addresses them in the singular, my Lord. I bring this up because weird things are going on with Abram near the Oaks of Mamre at the time, and Melchizedek is the first of these two incidents. Melchizedek the priest does something curious, something strange. He offers as his sacrifice bread and wine. When Moses and the elders of Israel see the feet of the Most High God in the book of Exodus, they offer bread and wine to God. But this priest in Genesis, Melchizedek, offers the bread and wine by himself, and Abram does something soon after that is reserved as an honor for God alone. Abram pays to Melchizedek a 10% first fruit tithes directly to him. <laughs> That would be because Melchizedek is a theophany, a God sighting in the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus. Jesus also offered bread and wine. And during the Last Supper, communion, which we celebrate today, in the New Testament, he says, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Take it and drink it. Now, of key importance here is the meaning of the name Melchizedek. 
Early scholarship on the original language derivatives in the name rightly state that the name has something to do with the god El, E-L, or Elohim, right? One of the names of our god. But that's only part of the story. The name Melchizedek means the Lord is righteousness, or better, the Lord is my righteousness, or even more distinct, the Lord is king over my righteousness. And that is the key point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make today. The writer of Hebrews is critiquing the readers of the letter because they are only drinking milk and not eating the meat of spiritual maturity. He states that though they should be teachers themselves by this point, they still need assistance with the elementary principles of the word of God. The word there is logos, again, a reference to Jesus. They again repetitively need assistance understanding who Jesus Christ is and why it matters. It states specifically that these believers need to become acquainted once again with the word of righteousness. Thus the play on words with a person of Melchizedek earlier mentioned who in uh, the Old Testament is Jesus whose name means the Lord is my righteousness, the Lord is the king of the righteousness of my life. Melchizedek also was the king of Salem, which a proper translation is shalom. It means cosmic peace. Melchizedek is the king of cosmic peace in one's life. And Melchizedek is the high priest in a unique way who offers bread and wine. Do you see where we're going with this? Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is the one that makes us right with the Father. And God knew all along this entire plan that his own son would become one of us to provide for us our righteousness. So what would these early Jewish Christians probably need to learn, though? I mean, seriously, they probably were pretty, uh, pretty solid in their teachings, right? Well, my theory is that they needed to relearn all over again that they are not their own righteousness. You are not your own righteousness. I am not my own righteousness. Right in between Genesis 14 with Melchizedek and Genesis 18, the three men who appear uh, to Abram, is Genesis 15. And it states that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or applied to him as righteousness. Abraham did not work for it. He did not earn it. He himself could not take credit for it. It was a gift. And that gift of righteousness was credited to him by God as a right relationship with his heavenly father. That's what the word righteousness means. Romans 4, the apostle Paul picks up on this. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness, Romans 4. 
So the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews keep going back. They keep going back to this previous line of thinking, this previous way of thinking, this belief that mistakes one's actions for God's justifying gift. This is why the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from good works. It's the idea that you're repenting from the idea that the things that you do can save you and of faith toward God. Then he starts listing uh, things in and of themselves, those things are not bad things. But they had become a litany of nitpicking, ritualistic rules associated not with Judaism proper, I would state, but with what's called a Judaizing tendency among the early uh, followers of Christ, okay? So it's like you're taking the, the parts that um, the Pharisees essentially were preaching and trying to apply it to the Christian faith. This includes instructions about ceremonial washings that may refer to how baptisms were done, more likely referred to a group of uh, second temple uh, kosher purity rituals, okay? They just held on to these rituals. He also brings up the laying on of hands, which often is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the healing prayers of elders, but here it's a reference to meticulous and tedious application of legal rights, rules, regulations, and rituals, specifically on how you ordain a new church leader. They got down to the nitty-gritty, okay? I don't think there's anything wrong with ceremonies and with rites and rituals in and of themselves. We have them in this church. We have some special communion plates here today. And chalice, I love that chalice. It's kind of heavy. It's got just the right amount of weight to pour the juice in. We have all kinds of special ways to do things. And so does every church really in the world. We have a place for everything. We have a way that it's done. And traditions that really, in the best sense of the term, are designed to remind us of who God is and who we have been in the past. But here's the problem. When we start to mistake the ritual or the tradition for God himself, or think in any way that the only right way to experience God is through that ritual, in that way, by that tradition, or if we begin to judge people, especially people from the outside who don't know Jesus, who are not partake, are partaking in the ritual, but maybe some Christians who are choosing to partake in a ritual in a different way, equally orthodox, but simply different. When we begin to do that, we actually become idolatrous. Because we're equating something that is not God as if it is God. We can't substitute our traditions, our ways of doing things for God himself. Perhaps the greatest offense is thinking that the ritual itself will actually make us closer to God because of our meticulous keeping of that ritual. Those things cross the line and are actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. 
We do these acts because we are already accepted by God. Because he is our righteousness. When we mistake the way we do things for the God whom we serve, we become the weaker brother or sister. We become the less mature, not more. It's easy to think that these things are a sign of our Christian maturity, but I'll explain later what the actual sign of our Christian maturity is. The Hebrew church took their spiritual maturity to a level whereby they could not even correctly articulate the reality of the resurrection of the dead or the eternal judgment of the wicked and the righteous. Those basic foundational things were muddied up by the other little things that they did. They probably fell back into old beliefs, influenced by the Sadducees, in other ways influenced by the Pharisees. They began to ignore anything that was actually correctly taught by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Surprisingly, there were some things, even in the New Testament. And they only adopted the incorrect teachings of those groups. If only they had their foundation solidly in Jesus, they would be able to discern the difference. Meanwhile, they themselves should have been teachers of the gospel of truth by that time. That's what the passage says. It states in the text that the true test of this kind of spiritual maturity is is the disciples' ability to test the spirits, to test and to discern between good and bad. Has nothing to do with ceremonies and all to do with the heart of the matter. What is of God and what is not of God? These issues are so important that the next section of Hebrews discusses what happens when a disciple falls away from the truth or is led astray by false teachings to the point where they fall away from Christ entirely. If one does not understand that Jesus is the ultimate high priest, that he laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for one's sins, that he is our righteousness, that these smaller things that we do in the scheme of things do not matter, if if we don't come to that realization, then there is no other sacrifice to offer. There's no further high priest to offer it. If Jesus isn't a good enough sacrifice for us, what other sacrifice is there? If Jesus is not a good enough high priest for us, what other high priest is there? So how can we apply these principles? I was really thinking about this. How does this apply? There's some strange language in this scripture. There appears to be two ways of doing that even according to the text itself. The first is that we have to always keep at the forefront of of our minds what it is that Jesus has done for us as the high priest. We are completely reliant on him to the point where our seemingly righteous acts are about as good as filthy rags. That's what it says in Isaiah 64. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. 
This passage leads us to the understanding that no level of ceremony, no level of pomp of circumstance can make us right with God. No level of how we've done things in the past or how we may even do things in the future, no level of stability and no level of change will make us right with God. Only God makes us right with God. Our passage today actually states that we are called to repent from dead works. That those things we become convinced that draw us closer to God may sometimes push us away from him. Is only by Christ's blood, his sacrifice, his free gift that we are redeemed. The way of the Pharisee is precisely what this passage from Hebrews is warning the Christian faithful against. Keep in mind that the Pharisees love their traditions. They are obsessed with the nuanced details of their own religious sentiments and viewed the adherence to ceremonies as markers of their proximity to God and their involvement in the covenant. The problem is simple, though. That view of reality isn't true. Judging one's own allegiance to Christ based on a set of rules or standards of purity, liturgical regulations or religious formalities basically misses the point. And judging others based on those standards also misses the point, especially in the 21st century America where most of our country is going down a path where they don't even believe in Jesus at all. The point is that Jesus makes us right with God by grace, through faith. Knowledge and acceptance of that fact is pure worship and it results in pure worship. Knowledge and acceptance of the fact that we are worthless and God is worth all of it makes us pure worshipers. Now again, I wanna make something very clear. The liturgical elements of very many churches, including this one, are biblical. They are beautiful. They're designed to teach us about and lead us into the truths of God. Very many people experience God in an amazing and intimate way through them. We'll be celebrating communion today during this World Communion Sunday. We're using, utilizing a liturgical framework that is biblically informed, been part of the church tradition for centuries, and is part of the Reformed tradition as well. But the word liturgy means the work of the people. And it's not a work that saves us. It is what the liturgy points to that saves us. And the liturgy of communion points to the work of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is living and breathing reality. Jesus is actually at work alive now, here. He is present. It references neither of a tradition nor a ceremony. It references a person. Okay, so it's not about the things. It's not about the programs that we do. It's not about the way that we do things. It's about a person. I remember when I was younger, um, Chris, my mentor, he said, 
Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? I didn't realize why that was important. It's important because every aspect of our faith hinges on the fact that it's personal. It was personal to Jesus to shed his blood on the cross for you and for me. Jesus won for us eternal freedom. Eternal freedom. From every sin that condemns, every chain that binds, every brokenness that needs to be made whole, every tyrannical force of evil that oppresses us, every work of death in this world, Jesus and Jesus alone rights the wrongs and reverses those curses. This is what the letter to the Hebrews means by repenting from dead works. It is the acknowledgement that there is no work that works besides the redeeming work of Jesus. Furthermore, the traditions that we do enact must be from a solid theological understanding, from a clear heart, and most importantly, from a place of living faith. One of our church's elders quoted this saying uh, from one of uh, her previous pastors. It's spot on. It says this, tradition is the living faith of those who have died, while traditionalism is the dead faith of those who are alive. Think about that for a moment. Tradition is the living faith of those who have died, while traditionalism is the dead faith of those who are alive. We can and should be a people of tradition, honoring the living faith of those who have come before us. But woe to us if our traditionalism enshrines a faith that itself is dead. We want our faith to be alive and thoroughly acknowledging and depending upon Jesus. I'm actually not even saying that God is calling us to give up our traditions. What I'm asking is this, if God was, would we? The second way we can apply today's scripture passage is through obedience. When it does come to obedience, we must ask, in what way should we obey? Will we notice that Jesus' final command to us before his death, uh, before he left this earth, had nothing to do with the words that we say during worship or the responsive litanies or the patterns or the styles? No matter what kind of worship we do here, that's not what, really what it's about. Jesus' final command to us is as straightforward and as simple as you can ever possibly imagine. Go and make disciples. That's what he says. That is his command. It's, all, it's, it's embedded in the New Testament. Hebrews tells us that we should all be teachers by now. We are Christ's ambassadors of the true gospel of grace by faith. Our role is to help others mature in their relationship, in their knowledge of Christ Jesus, whether that is with someone who does not yet know Jesus or someone who is kind of learning how to follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says this, and the same is true for you. Since you are so eager to have the special abilities that the Spirit gives, Seek those that will strengthen the whole body. Anybody here ever heard of Mordecai Ham? 
thinking, first he's talking about steaks, now he's talking about ham. Mordecai Ham was a, a small town preacher from Kentucky. He felt by God that he was supposed to reach out to new people who didn't know Jesus. But to be honest, he wasn't very good at it. But he did it anyway. And sometimes people would come to Jesus and be like one every five years. And Mordecai's like, no, I know. This is the calling of Scripture. I know God is calling me to do this. One day in his like little audience or near the tent or wherever he was, he was preaching the gospel and this young man came up to him and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And that young man was Billy Graham. You think Mordecai Ham, his obedience didn't change this world? Billy Graham is responsible through the power of the Holy Spirit for the conversion of millions of people. Millions of people came to know Jesus through Billy Graham. If it wasn't for Mordecai Ham, who knows what would have happened. My point is this. What made Mordecai Ham important wasn't his skill set. It was his obedience. The leaders of this church, its staff, those wise in prayer and discernment, those with the gifts of evangelism, discipleship, elders of the church were kind of praying through this method that we might be able to apply here. It's a method where we could help you all make disciples. There's four little points to it. It's based thoroughly on a method that Jesus employed. It's Jesus' method of making and maturing followers in him. Those people who are coming to know Christ and grow in him by the Holy Spirit, they occupy, uh, occupy these like four steps, and you can see these four steps in the New Testament. Step one, Jesus says, come and see, or others say, come and see Jesus. Come and see who he is. Come and see his identity as a person. And tell me if you don't fall in love with him. <laughs> Step two, once a person has come and seen, Jesus reaches out another invitation and he says, follow me. Right? Follow me. That's a point of decision. Do you believe that I am your Messiah? Do you believe that I'm your Lord? If you do, I'm going to shake up your life. <laughs> Following me is going to be this amazing whirlwind adventure. And it's going to be really hard too. But it's going to be amazing. Step three, when we start to follow Jesus, he calls out and modifies his command to us. It's not just follow me. He says, and I, I give you a promise. I promise something. I will make you fishers of men and women. That is why we exist. We exist for two reasons. To worship God Almighty and to make disciples of all the nations. We use the gifts he has given us to reach out to those who do not know him. And to further mature those who do know him. And this requires an investment of time and a replication of the gospel itself. And then step four, this is where it gets really good. Go and bear fruit. Jesus tells that parable about the multiplication, right, of kingdom elements, right? 
160, 30 fold. You know how he knows how he starts with 100? Because that's his expectation. He wants us to replicate 100 fold. It's not, it's not us who does this, right? Uh, Matthew 13, 8, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a, co- a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. It's God who does the converting of the heart, right? We plant the seeds, but God is the one that makes them grow. God simply calls us to participate in the process. And why is that a process that, that we wouldn't want to participate in? <laughs> Sounds amazing. But it's inconvenient. Maybe I just, I don't know. Maybe this morning I just want to go get a cup of coffee and be by by myself, right? Maybe I want to do something that I want to do. (laughs) Maybe I won't take the time to do this thing that God might be calling me to do. But this is what is meant by being a carnivore. It's what is meant by being a teacher of the gospel of Christ. The most mature ones among us will have the deepest desire to see others know Christ and grow deeper in uh, their relationship with him. The most mature among us will be the least concerned with themselves and the most concerned with God and all of these people around us going to hell in a handbasket. That's our concern. We want to help you. First, we want to help you identify your gifts. Each of you has amazing gifts. And they're spiritual gifts. They're gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit. Then we want to equip you. We want to help train you up a little bit, okay? This stuff is not rocket science, but it's always good to have a little bit of support, right? And then we want to release you. You're going to say, well, what are you going to release me into, Pastor Steve? Is there some new... Fandangle program? No, we're going to release you into life. (laughs) Your neighborhoods. The local coffee shop that you preferred to go to instead of interacting with somebody. (laughs) The gym. The library. Your workplace. Your very homes. You are ambassadors of Christ's gospel. Live it. Not all of us here are evangelists. I feel very alone in that. I think there's like three people with a gift of evangelism in this church. (laughs) That's okay. You know what? Most of you, we've done this spiritual gifts assessment. I think it's like a third of you have a gift of hospitality. That's such a beautiful gift. (laughs) What greater way to reach the world around us than to be hospitable to them, to be welcoming? Come and see. The vast majority of you are hardwired to help people come and see. It's amazing. Others of you are teachers. 
uh, Bob Jamison and I are, have the honor of working with some of the teachers here in this church. And you have these amazing gifts to, to explain, to interpret the scriptures for those around you. Others of you have the gift of administration. I mean, I really respect that gift because I, I think that is like super low on my list. I'm about as, as organized as a bag of chaos, right? But your gifts can be utilized. We're working on how to make, bring it all together. But there's a place for each of you. No matter what tongue, tribe, or nation, no matter what gifting you have, there's a place. Some of you have a heart for modeling to others what it means to fish for men and women, to form bonds with others, to guide them in how to reach others themselves. And some of you are at a stage of maturity whereby you're replicating yourselves. Your ministry is producing a fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And the funny part, Jim Sharon mentioned this in a teaching yesterday. The funny part is you might not be able to see it. Because the kingdom sometimes appears invisible. But at the end of time, it won't be invisible. It will be revealed. So please continue to pray as we discern how to make disciples who make disciples in this church. Because that is our mission. That's the mission of every church. <laughs> please keep your ears open to God's calling, to the opportunities here at the church for you, to identify your gifts, and to train as to how you might use them in these four steps. Come and see. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men and women. Now go and bear fruit. Let's do it for Christ's sake and for his kingdom. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Carolyn. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check out our website at mlepc.org. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a podcast. Have a blessed day.